Hello, and welcome to episode 104 of the Cognicast, a podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people who create it. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Well, here we are. We've got a few announcements for you, as always, things that we think you might find interesting, things going on in the closure world and related. And when I say related, one of the things I want to tell you about today is the Papers We Love conference. This is the first conference that Papers We Love organization is putting on, and it's going to be co-located with uh, Strange Loop in St. Louis, Missouri. It's going to be on September 15th. This is 2016, so that's the same day as the pre-conference events at Strange Loop. Uh, so Strange Loop's a great event. Um, this looks like an awesome addition to the things going on around there. So Papers We Love um, is an organization where they uh, share an interesting paper or papers from the uh, academic computer science community and talk about them. Uh, I've been to a couple of their events here in D.C. where I live, uh, Washington, D.C. where I live, and it's a fun event. It's just a lot of people who are you know just interested in learning, uh, talking about this stuff. So this is their first conference. Um, so they're going to kind of take it a little bit beyond that. You can check out their website at pwlconf.org um, to uh, see what's going on there, what the idea is. Um, and they're still getting their speaker list together, but I'm sure it'll be a great list. So you should keep an eye on pwlconf.org. Again, that's September 15th in 2016, happening in St. Louis, co-located with Strange Loop. Couple other events to mention. Uh, there's the Boston Closure Group. They're meeting uh, Thursday, July 14th at 6:30 at Akamai Technologies. Uh, I love Boston. I went to school there, and uh, I kind of wish I could go to that. There's a, just a lot of great kind of Lisp community in the Boston area, and I, I bet that Closure Group is is fun. Maybe I'll be up that way one of these years, and I'll get a chance to attend. If you're in the area, you should try to attend. Uh, also mentioned the Bristol Closurians this is in the UK, in uh, uh, the United Kingdom. They're going to be meeting Wednesday, June 29th at 6 p.m. Uh, for programming in the pub. Uh, you can check out more about them if you look up uh, Bristol Closurians on uh, Meetup. So uh, check that out as well. Uh, that's, just, that's it for today in terms of announcements. So we will go ahead and go on to episode 104 of the Cognicast. I'm ready to go if you are. I'm ready. All right, then let's do it. All right, welcome everybody. Today is Thursday, June 9th, in the year 2016, and this is the Cognicast. Uh, today we are excited to welcome back, uh, actually rather soon, which is awesome, uh, to the show, uh, uh, my boss, the editor of this show, uh, Russ Olson. Welcome to the show, Russ. It's lovely to be here, Craig. Yeah, well, we're glad to have you back so soon. It's awesome. Um, and we have a pretty specific thing we want to talk about today, although, as always, if you have other things you want to talk about, we'll dive into those. Uh, now, of course, we are going to start you off with the question we always start off with, and that is the one, as you well know, that pertains to an experience of art, where we ask our guests to share some kind of artistic experience that they've had that they you know, would like to let us all know about. So I wonder what you have for us today, Russ. So, so against all expectations, I'm actually prepared for this question this time. Um, I, I wanted to talk about a new form of video entertainment, really, that uh, I have been experiencing lately. Um, and, you know, it's, 
it's the kind of thing where technology changes the format of art sometimes. And I was thinking about it. And if you look at the really early movies, films, they're basically stage plays put on for the camera. And TV sitcoms kind of grew out of the skits that people did in vaudeville shows because the early, really early TV was very vaudevillian. Um, but neither films today nor uh, TV sitcoms are what they started. You know, the technology changes the form of the art. And so the, the new form of video entertainment that I'm thinking of is a really long form. It's like the last one that I consumed, if that's the right word, was about 20 hours long. And it's actually, it's the structure of these things that I think is interesting. So this 20-hour thing that I consumed was in two major parts. So two parts of about 10 hours long. And then each one of those parts were broken down into three-hour sections, I guess, three or four. And then each section was in three or four one-hour chapters. I am, of course, talking about binge-watching a TV show on Netflix. (laughs) Of course. Um, And the reason I bring this up is I was thinking about whether or not because of this, you know, streaming technology and the fact that you can binge-watch a TV show, if that will change the way people make TV shows. Like, if we keep doing this, um, will that change the way people make TV shows, well, they start to realize that I need to make these episodes maybe in in three-episode clusters or something, at least, you know, if people are like me and kind of sit there and watch three three episodes at a time. But in, in any case, the, uh, the TV show that I was watching was uh, Better Call Saul. I don't know if you've seen that, but it's just a brilliant piece of TV. So anyway, that's my, my experience in art, thinking about how technology changes art you know the the tv show is still more or less the same drama has been more or less the same for a couple thousand years but but the technology changes the form of it yeah certainly i mean you look at the uh the ability to record and what that did to music right for instance right absolutely it's it's kind of the same thing now we're special effects in movies yeah no it's yeah it's very very interesting well, that's very cool, but uh, we actually do have a topic that we want to discuss today. This was suggested by a listener, um, and it's actually something that I've heard from a bunch of people. It's a topic that we've touched on a bunch of times in the show, but never really buckled down and dedicated like an entire episode to or the bulk of one. Um, and that's uh, being a distributed company, right? So this is a question that comes up all the time. Uh, people listen to the show ask it. People that we are interviewing ask it. People that our potential clients are asking this. They're like, well, how do you make a company that can have people scattered all over the the country? And when we were talking about uh, doing an episode on that, it, it occurred to me that you would be an excellent person to come on the show and talk about it because uh, I think you've been in, you are in that position as a remote employee of the company, but you have, you know, something like 20 direct reports that are all over yes. the country uh, and, and people that work for you that are all over the world, in fact. Um, and so you have to manage all that, keep clients happy, keep the employees and, and contractors that we employ happy. And of course, on my part, I have been uh, primarily remote for the last, oh, it's coming up on 20 years now. So I've, I've done a fair amount of uh, remote work in my time, um, as have you. So I thought that between the two of us, maybe we could say one or two intelligent things in the course of our conversation. Yeah, and I think I think the first thing that you need to come to grips with when you talk about remote or remote working or distributed companies is why what's the business case for it? Why why would you do that? Cuz 
Um, and I think the business case for it is not that it's a great perk for your employees. That That is not it. I mean, it, I think it is that. But I think from the very global kind of business point of view, you uh, if you become a distributed company, you are moving away from drawing on all of the people who might work for your company who live within commuting distance of Durham or Pittsburgh or Los Angeles or wherever you are to all of the people that you might legally employ in the world. Right, and this is something that was very, very big factor in the history of this company when Stu and Justin, back in the days when we were relevance, uh, ran into Rich and countered closure and really started to say, this is the technology that we think is going to become very important. And this is way back when it wasn't at all as obvious as it is now that that was going to be the case. They started higher, and they very quickly went through most or all of the people in the Durham area that were interested in working in closure, or the intersection of interested of and capable of working in closure. And that was some great people. I mean, you know, I think just names like people have been on the show. That's, you know, Alan Dipert and, yeah. and a bunch of people like that. So, you know, there was an amazing pool of talent in Durham. But, you know, pretty soon they went through a lot of that. And, and you know, this is the same story that um, our friends at Roomkey kind of ran into too, which is there in Charlottesville. And there were a, a really amazing local pool of people. But pretty quickly they're like, well, we want to do more we're having a hard time hiring enough people to do the things we want to do. And so in the case of Relevance, of course, they started to become distributed. In the case of RoomKey, they worked with us. So there's different ways to, to tackle that need. But yeah, but we definitely said, um, you know, we're going to have to shift to having people that, you know, don't want to or can't move here. And I don't think it would be possible for us to be the company that we are now had they not made that decision. And it was a big deal. I mean, I came on at the time uh, when, uh, as part of my hiring agreement, uh, I had to make a trip to Durham every uh, one week every month. That was actually a requirement of my employment. And the reason was that there was a very, very strong local culture at the company at the time. People were eating lunch together every day and having conversations in the hallway. And it was, it was actually the case that I had been talking to Stu and Justin for, uh, and this is true for Tim Ewald as well, and probably others. We had been talking to Stu and Justin for, I don't know, maybe a year or two years, <laughs> where they're like, uh, you should come work with us. And we're like, okay. And they're like, all you got to do is move to Durham. And I'm like, well, okay. I, I You know, I don't, I don't think my wife's going to go for that, or I just bought a house, or whatever the other factors that were uh, in play. So, you know, uh, there was this company with a very strong local culture. I had to make the very big shift to supporting people that were, were remote. So, it was a really big deal, and I think you know Justin mentioned on the end of your episode that uh, that that shift has recently kind of passed another milestone in that we have gone from being a remote company, which was the transition that we were making when I was first hiring on, to being a distributed company. And he touched on that a little bit, but I wonder if maybe you could give your perspective on on the difference between those two things and how that shift was accomplished. I guess when I started. Most people who worked or the majority of people who worked at, at what was then Relevance worked in Durham. And then there was a handful of people like you and me who were remoters. And at some point, we hit kind of the 50-50 level. There were more or less the same number, approximately uh, people remote and people working in Durham. And, and then, as you say, now we're, we're a distributed company. I think... The challenges in that transition 
we're like everything else in our business. We're mostly about the people and about the culture and less about the technology. I mean, the, the technology challenge with being a distributed company is that you go from the highest, you know, if you think about the communication between people working in the company, you go from the highest possible bandwidth that you can have as a human being, which is standing in the same room with other people. And you go to a very, very, very narrow pipe, which is how much information can I get down the an internet connection um, to, to talk to this other person. The real challenge is around organizing people and getting them used to dealing with that narrow pipe between their coworkers. That's the main challenge in, in having a distributed company. I mean, how did we go about that, right? Like what, what were the what were the techniques we used to organize people to make that succeed? Because I think um from my perspective, mm-hmm. we have. I mean, I've been at a bunch of different companies where I've worked Remotely, uh, like for example, Microsoft. I, I was living here on the East Coast, working for Microsoft on the West Coast, um, and that honestly worked great uh, when I was con- when on certain teams and worked really poorly on other teams. So I've seen um, a, a spread of success results, uh, and I would say that uh, Cognitech uh, does very well indeed um, overall on the ability to include people that aren't physically present in Durham. So wh- how do we do that? How, how do we do it? Well, I was thinking about the history of what we, in fact, did. And I think one of the breakthroughs uh, for us was we got to the point – well, so, so there were little things we did. Um, and one of, the, one of the little things that we did was we hired you. Um, <laughs> and, you know, we thought we were hiring a, an architect and a senior developer when we hired you, and, and that is certainly what we did. But the other thing that we hired when we hired you was we hired uh, the person who would uh, be the advocate for the people on the other end of the of the phone line or the Skype conversation. And I think that that, if you're a mostly uh, one-place kind of company with a handful of people who are remote – you you need someone to advocate for the remote people, someone at every single meeting to say, can you please get a little closer to the microphone because we can't hear you? Can you please just all talk one at a time? No, I can't see what's on the left-hand side of the whiteboard because I can't see the whiteboard. And I think if the company culture is that everyone's in an office – People take reminding. It's not that anybody's going to be malicious or anything like that, but people have habits and they fall back on those habits. And as you transition to being uh, remoters, you need to change the habits and get everything down again, that narrow pipeline of bandwidth, which is the Internet connection or the phone line or, or what have you. But I think it's, it's, it's completely possible. Um, it's possible even with a narrower channel. I was when I was thinking about, you know, talking to you about this, and you mentioned that you had been doing this for a long time. I was trying to think of the first time I worked remote, and it was in the mid 1990s. And if you think about what kind of technology we had available back then, it was pretty dreadful. And I, 
I, I thought of it as using the ETFF technique. I was working, so I was the guy in the, you know, kind of the company headquarters, and I was working with this remote programmer who was out in Rochester, New York, and we used the ETFF, email, telephone, FTP, and floppies to, to get information back and forth. And that was a really successful collaboration. And when I think back on that, one of the reasons that I think that that worked was that he was my pair and we were working on this project or this part of this project together. And so I could be his advocate and I could be his interface to the rest of the people who were working on the project. And I think maybe that's not a bad way to start. If you're going to have, you know, if you're trying to find your first developer employee who's remote, maybe the thing to do is make sure that they have a single person that they are working with full time. Uh, is, is that I, I'm, I'm curious to hear what your early experiences were and if you've ever you know kind of had something like that yeah well I think I think you're onto something because uh, or at least something that lines up with my experience because although I've been doing the remote thing for quite a while uh, some of the earlier stuff I did was with Timmy Wald um, back in the early 2000s when we were both at Microsoft and that was enormously successful in a large part because Tim, was never shy about picking up the phone. Uh, we were already friends from our de- days together at Developmentor, and so it was kind of, for us, it was kind of like, oh, yeah, I should call Tim because, you know, we'll spend an hour kicking this problem around, and then we'll spend 10 minutes talking about woodworking or whatever, right? So there was a kind of a motivation to do it, right? You kind of, it was fun to talk to your friend, both about technical stuff, but, but you know, he was a guy that I was essentially paired with. I mean, we weren't doing pair programming in the sense of, you know, 100% heads down over the same piece of code, you know, looking at the same characters on a virtual, the same virtual screen. But we were definitely working together on the same project. Um, uh, and, and so I think having that one-to-one connection was an important part for a couple of reasons. The first is the one that you said where it was kind of like, okay, um, we're connected, right? We're not left out on our own. Although he was remote too. Um, okay. Uh, so that's not quite the same. But um but he was an employee of Microsoft, so he was a little bit more on the inside, if you will. So that was that was good from my perspective, as I was a contractor to Microsoft, and that can be, um, in some organizations, that can be an additional barrier that goes up b- between people, right? It can be it can be a bit of a firewall. Are you an employee or are you a, a contractor? And I think sometimes that can compound. But 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 I think the other thing is that, and I mentioned this, is Tim's willingness especially Tim's willingness, he really taught me this, to just pick up the phone or the Skype or the whatever, right? Like, I think there's this sort of hierarchy of communication. Somebody's probably done academic work on it where, you know, what's the easiest thing to ignore? Well, it's an email, right? Right. What's the second easiest thing to ignore? An IM. What's the third easiest thing to ignore? And actually, this isn't that easy to ignore, is a phone call. <laughs> and the hardest thing to ignore is, is somebody knocking on your office door and stepping in, Right. And so, um, you know, Tim had a willingness to skip over the ignorable ones if it was worth doing so, right? In other words, to not just shoot off an email and kind of twiddle his thumbs hoping that maybe I'd pick it up, read it, and answer it, or whoever would. Uh, But to pick up the phone and say, I have a question for you. The answer to this question will enable me or you to work, and therefore it is worth us spending this time, even though I think as human beings, and maybe this is true more now than it has been, you know, we we tend to, I, I tend to at least, and I think this is true for a lot of people, we tend to reach for the things highest up on that ladder, right? We, we, right. we yes. I am before we call, we call before we show up in person. Um, 
And so, although I guess maybe you could argue about whether what, where email and I am, but the, it, the point is still like asynchronous, you know, um, text-based communications is the thing we reach for first, and we really shouldn't. Um, we really should be looking at maximizing bandwidth a lot more than we do. Uh, and this is actually one of the reasons that I like to use video. I think I'm somewhat infamous for this around the company is that, you know, people will call me up or we'll have a conversation on Skype and I'll turn my video on. And the reaction I get, even still, a lot of the time is, oh, we're doing video. Right? You know, you know, it's funny. One of the things that I made a note to myself to mention was one of the things that I learned about, you know, doing this remote thing from you is to use video more often. Um, and I actually visited a consulting firm. I don't think we really do this here at Cognitech, but not a bad idea is that if you have several major locations, which is kind of a variant of being remote, like if I have an office in Chicago and one in Cleveland or something, uh, I've seen people, um, companies, where they have a video video Skype session or something going all the time between those two remote uh, between those two distant offices, just so people can kind of walk up to the screen and say, "Hey, Bob." Hey, Sally, you know, can you help me with this or something? Um, but one of the things I definitely learned from you is turn the camera on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, ironically, we have it off right now because uh, that's just a thing that I do with the podcast where because this is an audible uh, medium. Yes. Uh, I, I actually prefer not to have uh, video going with the guests. And, and it actually ties in because the reason I do it is so that I don't wind up relying on um, – on visual communication. Yes. But that just sort of points out that there is something going on in video, right? And, uh, and, and if possible, in terms of how to set it up, um, I like to, especially when I'm pairing, make sure that the two people working together have two screens and have the screen that has the video camera, in it, you know, the laptop or mm -hmm. if you've got a webcam, be off to the side. Um, because what happens then is you have your main screen and it's sort of in front of you as you sit or in front of each person as they sit. Right. And the camera is to the side with the video and you wind up very naturally turning to address the person because that's where their video is and that's where the camera is. And so it brings um, eye contact to some degree back into it. I'm looking at the screen. You will see that I'm looking away from you. When I turn to speak to my image of you, I, you'll see me turn towards you, and that actually cues people to take their hands off the keyboard and turn to you, and you know, fully uh, or more fully put their attention on you. So I think there's all sorts of things that we can do um, that that leverage uh, video that brings some of the interpersonal um, cues that we're hardwired to have uh, back into the remote relationship. Because, and I think this is something that uh, we both have on our list to talk about. Um, it's it's not 100% as high bandwidth as being in the room, no matter what you do. And I think it's actually important to mention that and to remember it, is that yes. no matter what, you are giving up something. Now, hopefully you're uh, – and we certainly believe at Cognitech that we are. But hopefully when you make that exchange, you're getting something in return. But you're definitely giving something up, and it's I think it's important to remember that. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, – about the pain of being real, because I think it would, we would be remiss if we didn't uh, include that in the conversation. Just as you were, you were talking about having the video on as you as you pair programmed. Uh, I can remember um, 
there was someone who used to work at Cognitech who no longer works at Cognitech, but it's not really related, who would drive me absolutely crazy when we repair programming over, you know, maybe uh, with the Tmux, you know, thing and Skype with no video. But when I programmed with him in person, when I'd go down to Durham and visit him, we were fine together. And eventually I worked out that he would talk while I was trying to think. But if we were in person, if he could see me, he could see me shifting around a little bit and he would stop talking. Mm. And uh, I I think that that is, uh, you you know, it's that kind of thing. And then I think you're right that there are, uh, you know, kind of cues that you get in person that would not come across in video, uh, at least not nearly as well. Um, I think so. So the pain of 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 being remote. I, so I I think it is easy uh, for groups of people to get into them and us kind of situations, and particularly with you know people who if you have most people in a central place and then a few remoters, I think it is imperative to not fall into that. And I think one of the ways to not fall into that is to encourage the people who work at the office, if you will. I think this is one of the things that that helped us to occasionally telecommute, right? This is, you know, working remote is not just something for the people who live in Cleveland or Los Angeles or whatever. It's for everybody. And the more that everyone can get the feeling of what it's like to work remote, the better working remote goes because now we have all we all have the same point of view. Yeah, you uh, you mentioned earlier that one of the things that I used to do, and and at times, honestly, it felt like endlessly, was to remind people <laughs> about how their actions when they were local were um, coming across the the audio link to the rest of us, right? So yeah. if people would talk more than one at a time, if you're in a room with two people that are talking, you can actually focus on them pretty well, yeah. whichever one you want. If you're remote, it is impossible, or at least for me, I just can't pick one person out of the babble of more than one person talking. So I would always be saying, please speak one at a time. Please speak one at a time. Please speak one at a time. Well, I, I do think that there's a there's actually a physical reason for that, which is that, you know, we're talking on Skype right now. It is, I suspect it is a mono mm-hmm. connection. At best, it's stereo. It's not, I can't place the sounds in the room nearly as well as I can um, if I'm actually in the room with you. And yeah. I, think that, I think that's a big part. Of, I mean, I, I don't think it's just a psychological thing. I think there's actually a physiological, I can't pick these sounds out because there's no directional information with them. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. And I, and this is actually one that I've thought about a lot, you know, unsurprisingly, given how much of my life I live at the other end of an audio uh, connection. But um, But yeah, I've actually thought about this because I have a little, and you have one of these too, a little Zoom mic. It's a stereo mic. Yes, and when I first got it and and tried recording with it, and then put on the headphones and listened to it play back, I was absolutely blown away by the sense of presence that it yes. communicated versus a monaural mic. Yeah, um, and I've really wanted for a long time to have a telepresence uh, solution that would let me use a stereo mic at both ends and 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 communicate that, particularly for conference call situations. Um, there's actually, we, we've played with various communications technologies and I think we'll talk about tooling in a bit. Um, we've touched on a few things, but we've played with various communications technology. We played with, um, 
uh, it's not TeamSpeak. It's one of the gaming-related ones. Actually, lets you uh, do 3D positioning. Oh, right. Yes, uh, I right. didn't know about this. Yeah. So, so I mean, it makes sense, right? If you have a a game, you have information about right. the relationship of other people in a virtual 3D space. Well, I always thought it, and so we actually played for a while with with that. It didn't work out as well as you know some of the more um, kind of business-oriented software it was gaming-oriented, but you could actually do things like take each person on the call and drag them out into a two-dimensional space and said so I would hear Russ on the right and I yeah, would hear yeah. Tim on the left. And I always wanted to, to do something like that for our, our group calls because I, I really yeah. wonder how much it would it would help. But, you know, unfortunately, um, you know, there's a million side projects and that's one I never got to. And I, I'm not aware of anything that's out there that, that does that right now. I, as you were talking, I was thinking that I would drag Mike Nygaard so he was apparently speaking from the ceiling and then he would sound like God. <laughs> <laughs> the voice of Mike. Yes. 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 Uh, uh, well, so many jokes I could make there. Anyway. Um, so, but, so yeah, I think a lot of the, you know, overcoming the challenges of, of working as a distributed company. Well, for one thing, I think one of the things that we did consciously as a company was get rid of the term remoter. I mean, I think you and I talk about remoters as a historical thing, like, oh yeah, I was one of the original remoters, but we tend not to talk about it in the present tense anymore because again, I think we are all, we've gotten to the point where it's a distributed company and oh yeah, some of those people are distributed in Durham, you know, and great. Um, but I also think, I mean, so maybe I'm going to slide into the tooling a little bit, but I think anything that you can do to make your interactions with the people you're working with interactive in real time are uh, gold. So, for instance, Google Docs is amazing mm -hmm. when, you're, when you're trying to work in a distributed fashion. If I can see what you're typing, you can see what I'm typing, and um, you can point and I can see where you're pointing. That kind of thing, I think, is huge. I also think that the silly chat room that a lot of companies have, uh, you know, where people post gifts of cats and things like that, is way more important in a distributed company than it is uh, in in a you know a centralized company. Um, you know, it, it's it's the place where we do the silly things and the kind of relaxed inner personal things that people might do, you know, running into each other in the hallway if we we're all together. I, I think so, so there's some things that I think I know I do as a manager because we're a distributed company. And and one of them, ironically, is exactly the opposite thing of what you were saying about, you know, the hierarchy of communications. Um, I, I, I think here at, at Cognitech, our hierarchy, if it seems to me to be email is the most asynchronous. We use HipChat, and that's less asynchronous, but still kind of sort of asynchronous. And then there's Skype, both the chat and the, uh, the voice version of Skype always seems to me to be a little bit more imperative, because if you uh, kind of text me over Skype, it sort of means that you're looking for a conversation, maybe. Maybe that's just me. Mm -hmm. But anyway, we certainly have this hierarchy, and as a manager, I have a tendency, I think, and I think this is common with people who manage people, to go for the most direct one. So I have this tendency to Skype people or at least, you know, send them an IM saying, hey, you know, what do you think about this or something like that? And I have to 
consciously ask myself, is this a question I really need an answer to right now or do should I uh, email this person? And uh, so I, I, I think managers should think in the in the other direction because if, you know, not so much you because you don't care about impressing me, but there are people in this world who if their boss, you know, sends them a Skype, they jump, right? And it interrupts their whole day. Um, and I think as a manager, you need to not do that particularly, well, you need to not do it in general, but you need to not do it when people are distributed because then it's, uh, you know, like a lightning bolt from heaven that completely interrupts your day to find out, oh, yes, Friday is a company holiday or something, whatever, you know, something completely trivial. Yeah, I think the lightning bolt maybe is the other direction in your case, Russ. But uh, anyway, um, no, I think, but I think, I guess I wouldn't say, uh, there was a little bit of implication in what you said that you're inappropriately waiting at the other direction. And I don't think that's true. Um, as you say, uh, you know, maybe it's just me, but um, I think you're right in that it's important to strike an appropriate balance. So this is something that we've learned as a company, and I don't think it's anything novel, but, you know, that you when you're talking to a group of people that you actually have to, um, you know, communicate across multiple media. And I think that's maybe even more important in a distributed yes. company, yes. right? So send the email, but then also maybe mention it in the chat room. And then if it's really important, go around and talk to everybody using something even less ignorable, right? I mean, the extreme case of it was super important. You know, you, you fly out and, and, and face everyone or you say it when you, this is something else we'll talk about, when you bring everyone together, right? In the yeah. same, in the same place. Um, and and probably all three for the for the most critical pieces of information or the the things that have the most nuance and require the most bandwidth. So um, it is definitely a case of trying to to balance and blend the, the the various channels. Yeah, and I I do think the the choice of channels is something that we have struggled with a little bit as a company. I think. Uh, you know, one of the notes I made here was, well, as a company, you should pick a standard set of channels that communicate with, you know, pick HipChat or, or whatever, Slack or whatever. And, you know, and obviously everybody has email and things like that. Uh, and then I wrote a note to myself saying, and we do a bad, bad job of that or not a great job because we tend to have probably twice as many channels as we actually need. We have Skype and HipChat. Um, and we use uh, Confluence and Google Docs. And I think that that is maybe not ideal in some theoretical way, but I think it's the real world where different people have different requirements. And since this is the uh, the way that the whole company is communicating with itself, there needs to be latitude to say, hey, if we would, you know, there there needs to be a driving force that says we need to get down to as few channels of communication as we possibly can. So there's a standard way of doing it. But on the other hand, if there's a compelling reason, if if you need to use HipChat and other folks want to use Skype, well, that's two of them, and maybe we could live with two of them. So there, I, I think there has to be a balance. Uh, you don't want to standardize the something that a third of the company hates. I wonder if we could jump over to the topic of like getting together, right? We mentioned this. We actually, we actually get together. And, and actually, I think there's a couple dimensions on this for us because uh, we are remote not only from each other, but all, almost always, and in fact, these days, I think always is 
true from the client, right? So we're, you know, we do consulting and we work with people and, and remote from them as well. And we have to make decisions about um, to what degree we will fly the prod, the team members out to where the client is or fly the client out to where we are or whatever, um, as well as, you know, when we get the, the people that work at Cognitech Tech together. So um, I wonder if you could talk about kind of our history there and our approach to physical co-location. I think it's remarkable that working with the customers, the actual work that we do, is less of a problem in terms of the, the lack of physical presence, that working remotely, doing the actual work we do, I think actually is one of the easiest parts of this whole thing. Um, I think we've gotten really good at uh, the, you know, the technology of pairing with people remotely and all of, you know, the, I wouldn't say that we've mastered the technical challenges. I think the technical challenges of actually getting the work done in, you know, in different locations, we have a pretty good handle on the, the times when we need to be physically present on the customer site is is more like the orientation and the getting a project off the ground, the iteration zero is what we tend to call it, the iteration before you really start working, where you're talking over goals and, and uh, you know, costs and what's important and what's not important. That part we almost always do uh, in person, um, but... I'm not sure that I could put my finger on a project that had uh, significant problems simply because we were remote, um, actually doing the work um, from the customer. I think getting together in person is key at the beginning of the project, as I say, or maybe at a few touch points along the way on the project. Um, I think it is absolutely critical if you're trying to run a company where people are scattered uh, to the four winds to get them together to feel like they are a company periodically, which is what we do with the uh, meetings we call Cognation. Yeah, I, I agree with you on the, the client point. I think at the beginning of the project is is, uh, is important, although, as I think you said, not critical. I've been, actually been on several projects now where uh, we never met in person, and that was fine. Uh, we, we were able to connect um, to a sufficient degree over, over remotely. I do prefer it, right? I do like, you know, it, it's hard, right? I mean, you, you know, travel is hard. Right. I think right. We've, we've, we observed the other day uh, the vast majority of people that work at Cognitech have families, and that doesn't make travel any easier. So um, it's nice uh, that we can be remote, that we, that we can be working at home with our families in the evenings and, and um, not have that travel requirement. But that said, it does help to get out and, and uh, look people in the eye and, and, uh, and shake hands and all that, and, and maybe to do that about once a year. Um, the, the evolution of um, getting together of Cognation is interesting, though. I want to I touch on that because I think we've learned some lessons there. I mentioned at the beginning of my tenure at uh, Relevance that um, we were actually required, uh, those of us that were not living in Durham, to come to... Uh, Durham and uh, be there with the majority of the company who were uh, there all the time. Uh, once a month it was one week a month. We'd, we'd come down and hang out at the office, and it was super fun. Uh, but there was sort of a shift that happened um, as the company hired more and more people who were uh, remote. 
um, we observe that, well, if you have, say, a company of, well, call it 25 people, and say 10 of them are remote, and you're requiring those 10 people to come to town one week a month, well, any, any given week you have two or three people who are remote and the other 15 who live there all the time. Um, and so we observe that, well, it might make more sense to pick a week and have everybody that is remote or everybody that can that is remote come on that week. Um, and so we did that for a while and that worked pretty well. And then it wasn't 15 and 10. It was, you know, 15 and 15. And, you know, it became expensive, right? I mean, it was, it, it was really a very significant uh, financial cost to having everybody travel to the office uh, one week a month. And so the pendulum swung. We, we decided not to, to do that, and it became more ad hoc. Um, and we actually got to the point where we were, I think, I don't remember when this was. It was within the last couple of years. There was a year where we only got everybody in the same place, uh, not counting things like closure cons, where we tend to have a pretty good portion of the company, but an official all-company gathering in Durham where the purpose was specifically to bring us together. There was a year where that only happened once, um, and that was really the pendulum going way too far the other way. Uh, we really all felt that we just weren't seeing each other anything like enough, and you know there were people that got hired that had never, ever been in the same room with you know, had never been to the office. Had never been to the office. Had never been in the same room with ninety-five percent of the company. Um, and I feel like we've we've kind of um, kind of figured that one out. And this has been your project, so I'll maybe let you talk about where we are with Cognation and what you think a good balance is for us. Yeah. So Cognation is uh, our regular get everyone together. Historically, it has been in Durham, but I guess that's not necessarily part of it. It's just the most convenient place. And, you know, we've tried to do it twice a year, three times a year, that kind of thing. It tends to get caught up in events and people's uh, vacation schedules and things like that. So they tend to be, you know, if you think about trying to schedule anything for 30, 40, 50 people, it's, it's hard. But several times a year, we try and get everyone in the same room. We have done... And what we do in that room has varied over time from uh, doing talks for each other to having working groups where we try and work on problems. We almost always have uh, or maybe always have a company update from uh, Justin, the CEO, and, you know, kind of the upper management. Um, you know, we've we've tried different things to get the most out of the time we spend together. But I do think that the key thing is that we all get together. We go out to dinner a couple of times. Usually we have some, you know, people end up playing games after hours or playing music or whatever it is they like to do. We've gone to movies and it is just a moment, a couple of days for everyone to get together and feel like that's just not a voice at the end of the end of the Skype line or whatever. That's an actual person. And then I'm really thrilled to be working with these people. And I know uh, for me, every time I've ever gone, I come back like energized, like, uh, gee, I really like these people and I'm glad I'm working at this company. And, uh, I think that's probably a pretty universal feeling. Yeah. I can definitely speak for myself. And I think, you know, uh, you get a, one gets a sense of the energy in the company is, Never really low around here, but after a cognition, 
there's a definite spike. It's it's enormously important for for morale, I think, and I think it's good that we have um, kind of stabilized it to be more frequent than the the nadir that we hit in the last couple of years. Uh, once a year for us was definitely not enough. I, I wonder though. Um, I'd, I'd like to steer the conversation. I think we've talked a fair amount about how we do things at Cognitect, mm-hmm. but I wonder if we can generalize a bit because, like I said, this is something we get asked about a lot. Uh, not just from people who want to work with us, but also people who have a you know, broader context. They're like, well, I mean, so for instance, I- I've said before, uh, I think closure is in an amazing place right now when you consider it's the, the length of its history being as brief as it is. I think there's a lot of people out there who would love to work in closure who feel as if they aren't able to. Uh, and sort of um, paradoxically, I also feel like there's a lot of companies out there who we talk to that say, well, we'd love to work more in closure, but we feel like we can't find the people. And so it's hard to see how both of those things could be true. And I think one of the keys is that people have to get better at, um, you know, being distributed, right? Because if there's a person in Cleveland who really wants to work in closure and who would be a great fit for a company in Los Angeles, but the company in Los Angeles is not willing to consider people that won't drive to their office, then they're they're necessarily limiting themselves. So I guess what I'm uh, driving at is um, what advice do you think we can draw from our experience being distributed um, that would apply to uh, other people out there? Because I think one of the things about our context that's a little different is that we are a consulting company. And so, right. you know... I work with the people on the project teams I'm on. That's a pretty small portion of the company. So, you know, we are kind of trying to solve a a problem wherein, you know, six to ten people need to collaborate together. You know, four, maybe four of us and, you know, four of the client. Not 30 people need to be able to collaborate together remotely. So I think, I, I wonder whether you could say, well, okay, here are the things that we've done that worked for us and that would also work. Or if you're in a different context, here's what you might need to do differently, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, well, for one one thing that pops into my head is for the person who, say, would like to do closure or really any other technology and there's nobody local and they're trying to figure out how they go from how they can work for that company in Pittsburgh or San Francisco, I think simply finding a partner that you can work with, say, on some open source project uh, remotely is an enormous step to take, right? My my question to people who come to us and I may be worried about them being able to work remotely, but my question always is, have you ever done it in any way? Because it's like swimming. You need to do it a little bit and then it's easy, or at least you understand the problems. Maybe it's not easy, but you understand, you know, there's a there's a, a a point where you get you need to get your head around it and doing it really is the the only way to do it um f- from the flip side how do, how do you how would you get 30 people in a remote team to work together um i'm not sure uh, any suggestions from the from the microsoft experience uh, the teams that I worked there were smaller, so I'm trying to think if I've done remote stuff of that size. I mean, you know, as uh, as we've probably mentioned on the show once or twice, we actually do tend to work with um, – I mean, we work for large organizations, yes. certainly, but we tend to work in contexts where there's a smaller number of people on the immediate team. Um, I actually think there is all sorts of reasons that's a very good idea. I think um, you can actually look at our history um, as a 
uh, as we were bringing on people, and you can look at the fact that um, uh, I think you wind up breaking down even when you're in person after a certain size, right? So right. I, I, I mean, I, I brought that up earlier thinking, okay, well, what if I had a 30-person team? Well, honestly, 30-person teams don't work that great in person either. <laughs> I, you know, I was thinking of that myself. <laughs> you know, uh, we, we yeah. used to have these all-company stand-ups, and, yeah. you know, when it got to about 15 people, I think, was the limit where people were like, this is useless, right? Even with a bunch of smart people who are working on really similar things, people are like, this is silly. And we actually split the company. So I yeah. think I think maybe the answer is um, that's not actually a real problem that you would have. It's Or, or it's not unique to uh, rem- or distributed teams, right? right? right. I mean, if you're going you're gonna to have problems with a 30-person team. But, you, you know, you did just remind me of something that I did want to mention um, which is kind of a, you know, both as sort of someone who's worked in organizations and they only kind of manage our consulting business. I, I have to say that even in person, running decent meetings mm. is critically important. And when you're dealing with a distributed team, running a decent meeting is just absolutely critical. It's the difference between you know, getting something done and just kind of ticking everyone off for half the people in the room. And what do I, what do I mean by running a decent meeting? You have a meeting. Well, you know, it's like fight club, right? What's the first rule of the, the first rule of meeting club is don't ho- hold the meeting in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the second one is if you're going to have the meeting, have a purpose and the meeting is over as soon as the purpose is, you know, as soon as you get to the goal, Right. Don't ever say, oh, well, you know, the purpose of this meeting was X and we've done that, but we've got 30 minutes left. So let's, you know, I think that should be an invitation for everyone to hang up, Um, have an agenda, you know, have a a definite time, uh, make sure everybody can hear and be a jerk about not letting people kind of hijack the meeting in different directions. I think all of that stuff is just kind of basic uh, you know, running a business 101, but it is super critical when you are, are dealing with a remote team. Yeah, that's true. And I think it maybe comes back to some of that nonverbal cueing stuff. Like yeah. if, I, if I check out on a video call, and especially if video is not enabled, uh, if I check out on an online call, nobody knows, right? I'm I'm surfing cat videos on the internet and nobody has any idea, right? Yeah. Um, as far as they know, I'm paying complete attention. Yeah. Um, although... In my case, if I stop talking, they know I'm. I'm <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it's sort of social hygiene, and I think you're right. I think that stuff is magnified um, in the case where you, people aren't in the same room. Um, again, I would come back to I mentioned this just a second ago. I would, video, right? Yeah. Video helps address some of that. Yeah. Um, go ahead. I wonder if you. I think you did the the remote thing as kind of an individual contributor for a lot longer than I did it. I did it you know, periodically over time, but mostly until I got the Cognitech, I was working with people at an office. Um, And I wonder if you have any advice for someone who's worked at an office for a long time and now they're getting ready to work remote. Um, uh, For example, when I made that transition, I realized I needed to have a routine, a set of things that I did every day, um, 
And I used to have a routine which was mostly cued off of get in the car and drive to work. But since I didn't have that sort of post to hang the routine on, I had to like develop my own. And what I actually ended up doing was having a checklist of things I needed to do every day. Um, do you have any advice along those lines? Yeah, right. So we've kind of switched over from I have an org and I yes. want to have remote uh, people to I have I'm a person and I want to be a part of an organization where I'm remote. Um, yeah, so I think you're absolutely right. Routine is key, um, and routine uh, includes context. Um, so maybe I'll start this by saying, don't expect it to be easy. Um, it took me something like six months to get used to it. So if you if you begin this and you feel um, isolated, if you feel unproductive on certain days, if you feel um, out of place, um, you know, don't accept it certainly, but also realize that there is a certain adjustment period, at least for some people, I was one of them. Um, but I think, you know, now, like my routine now is when I am, um, I was about to say leaving to go to work. Right? <laughs> I mean, I, I, my office is in the basement, but I, I say goodbye to my kids. Yes. I use the literal words, bye, I'm going to work now. And, uh, you know, that's the mindset. And I walk down to my office. I'm fortunate in that I have a dedicated room um, that I can go to that has a door on it. I mean, not everybody has that. Um, and particularly for people with... Um, that are working in chaotic environments, you know, where they have maybe like small children running around, it, it, that's an additional challenge. If you can find a way to address that, uh, that is going to be a good thing. Um, you know, establish routines with your family. Uh, things like if the door is closed, right, you need to knock. If I don't answer, it means I'm on the phone and you go away unless something is on fire or someone is bleeding, right? <laughs> but if I say come in, then you can come in. And I think, you know, that and it's going to be different for everybody, but the idea is to try to think about how you can create a context that allows you to continue being in your work space, both mentally and physically, and allows the life that's going on around you to continue and not have to involve you in decisions about whether or not it's okay to integrate those two things. Because the truth is, like, if you're working at home and other people are home, as much as we would like to say you know, these two things are totally separate. I mean, we used to have, my wife and I both work at home. Um, and, uh, you know, this doesn't happen as much anymore, but it used to be the case that, you know, her friends would call her up and say, hey, you, you want to go to lunch or let's go shopping or whatever, right? And she's like, I'm working, right? You wouldn't come to my office and do yeah. this, right? And uh, it was quite irritating to her because they, they weren't respecting uh, it, and, but the truth is, is so. First of all, you, you're right to expect that people respect your your work time, even if you are at home. But you know, you are going to have to deal with a certain amount of that, and and it's one of the benefits in a way, right? Like if you're expecting somebody to come by and um and repair your air conditioning, well, you don't have to like make special arrangements to be home. You can say, well, I'm going to sit here, and they're going to call me when they're on their way, and when they arrive, I'll get up and go deal with that for 15 minutes and get them settled and come back to work. So like, you, you know what I mean? There's a trade off here. And the the advantage is that you have the flexibility to be at home and the things that involves maybe like around being able to control better what you eat for lunch, for instance. But you are going to have to deal with certain times where, um, you know, particularly if you have a family where your home life collides with your your work life. And just finding ways to set up a framework where that can be um, managed uh, to a level that's acceptable. You know, for some people, um, that's uh, going to be easy. And for some people, you're going to find that 
it's not possible, right? It's just not, you know, uh, it, for whatever reason, the people in your life or the configuration of your home means that, you know what, um, it just doesn't work out. It's, it's too much to ask or the situation has certain aspects. In that case, I would say, look for a place that you can drive to. There are all sorts of co-working locations. Right. Or maybe, you know, you can find other people where, you know, you, I, I'm just making this up, but like you can, you know, go to their house and pay them 50 bucks a, a week or something and sit in their living room with a laptop and use their Wi-Fi and there's nobody home, right? Like, you know, there's be creative and find ways to do it. But I think, I think really it's come down to, you know, have a work context in your life. And, and as you, you know, exercise that after a month or six months or whatever, it will become easier. Well, one of the um, – I, I, well, I completely agree with what you just said. I think that you put that brilliantly. And my, my own experience coming to what was then relevance was I set up uh, kind of such a strong work area, both kind of in physical terms and in mental, you know, I'm now at work, that it probably took me a year – before I started taking advantage of the flexibility of, oh, yeah, I can let the cable guy in, right. you know, um, because I was so much in the mindset of I don't want uh, my home life to kind of spill over and everything to become a blur. And I think that that's the uh, you know, kind of going the other way. That's the danger is that you let your not your home life spill into your work and interfere with your work. I think the other danger is that you let your work spill into your your regular life where you are essentially always working. Uh, and I think that that is something to, to watch out for as well. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I manage that because um, I've got my laptop kind of plugged into a bunch of stuff like a second monitor and whatnot. And it's it's a, it's enough of a pain to unplug it and carry it around with me that I don't, and I hate working on touchscreens, and I don't have another laptop. So when I walk out of this room, it it actually is irritating for me to 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 do anything that involves work except possibly reading my email. But, but you know, this isn't really a problem these days. That's unique to people that no, work remote, right? Essentially, yeah. if you're not, if any part of your job involves responding to email. Then I think, I think that's most jobs these days. Yeah. Um, overwhelmingly likely, it's you know the, the part of the job of people listening to the show. I mean, I suppose if like I was uh san- you know doing sanitation work where I'm you know, picking up garbage, but maybe maybe those maybe, maybe those guys have to deal with that. Yep. Those guys and girls have to deal with stuff too. Um, anyway, point is is that I think everybody has to kind of learn how to separate work and life. I think you're right that maybe the boundary is a little bit blurrier when. There's not physical separation, but for me, you know, I've got an office in my house, and I think that's a huge part of me being able to make that barrier between the two. Yeah, I think I, I think the key thing is to approach it as I need to keep some separation between my work life and my personal life in in both directions. I think is probably the best mm-hmm. attitude to go into it with. And you and I have a big advantage in that um, we work for a company where that's the norm, right? Like yes. people are not – you know, I, I know certain people. I may, in fact, be married to certain people who are frequently still on their laptop at 6.30 p.m. on a Friday. And, uh, you know, um, I'm not saying that we never work like that here, but it would be unusual, right? It would really be quite unusual for someone to be – 
calling me up with an urgent work question at 6.30 on a, on a Friday night or on, on weekends. And I think that's a, that's a really good thing. And so, you know, um, one of the nice things about being remote is that um, it does open up a larger world of options to you. And you can use that to select for companies with a culture where that, uh, that work-life separation is, is inherently easier to make due to their culture. Yes, yes. The one story that I have that I, I think of as kind of an anti-pattern of uh, remote working, and this is kind of flipping it back over and looking at it from kind of the management and company point of view, is at some point I was working for a company and we had maybe two remote workers. So it was mostly a company that had you know an office and everyone came to the office. I worked with one of the remote, it happened to be a guy who lived in Florida, and he seemed like very much on the ball and very really sharp guy um, and he always seemed to get the really crappy jobs and I mentioned it to one of the managers and the manager said oh he wouldn't move from Florida so his career is stalled hmm. and I think that if if you are in some position of of uh, where you're making decisions and you're sort of approaching uh, hiring somebody on that basis you shouldn't bother yeah you know, uh, because you're, you know, you're you're sort of increasing your pool of available people from uh, all the people who are willing to commute to all the people who are willing to commute, plus all of the remote people who are willing to be treated badly. And I don't think that's such a, you know, <laughs> uh, anyway. Yeah, well, right. As you said, anti-pattern. Yeah. All right. Well, Russ, I, you know, I um, I got to admit, like when we first uh, said we should talk about this, I'm like, oh, that's cool. Um, well, maybe this episode will be a little bit on the short side because I feel like, you know, we've been doing this for a while and, we, and it seems well understood. But honestly, here we are and I, I feel like we could actually continue. I mean, we haven't even like really dived into specific tools. I don't actually think they're that important. I think, you know, we covered the category, you right. know, like you should have something that does video. There's a lot of choices, blah, blah, blah. But, um, but I think maybe we should... Uh, so, so I do I do think that there there is one one aspect of the tooling that's that bears mentioning right here, mm-hmm. which is I think when it comes to remote working or working remote as as a developer, you need to lean towards the tools that are more textual and and less graphic because mm. they just seem to work better. It's true. You know, maybe that'll change in three years, but right now I think. You know, Vim or Emacs is probably a better shot than uh, Eclipse or something like that. Actually, I'm not. I, I so I would say I agreed with that at one point. Okay. Uh, but I, I have to say that over the last uh, couple years, um, and maybe this is a, a shift in kind of our approach towards pairing from a a thing five years ago that you always did. You know, ninety five percent of the time, to now where we employ it when it makes sense, which is you know. Not infrequently, but far from 95%, um, is that I've kind of gotten to a place where uh, I don't really care if the two of us can type at the same time. Okay. Right? Like, I, if I can see your screen, that's good enough. You know, and then you can type and we can talk. Like, in other words, t- to me, I've, I've made this shift to where the main thing is to be able to communicate, um, but not necessarily to be able to drive the keyboard at the same time. And in fact, um, since one of the things I'm called on to do a lot is to work with um, clients where the explicit goal is to transfer experience, right? To say, we want to have senior people on the team to kind of leaven our existing team. Um, 
I've, I've long been an advocate of when pairing that the person with less context, which is not to say that more junior developer, like I might be pairing with somebody who knows a lot about, say, um, client-side UI, which is not a specialty of mine. Um, in that case, I would be the person with less context. But whoever that is, that they should be the one typing because I feel like you retain more of the information. Yes. You're forced to um, really deeply understand what you're doing better if you're the one typing. So it's it's it, I just think that you can do that with screen sharing. I've, I've I, so I mean, I'll often just use Skype. I mean, Skype screen sharing is kind of meh, but it's it's good enough. Um, and if you need something better, we've used Join Me and Zoom, and there's, right. there's a bunch of stuff. But uh, so, so I think just to fill in the context, I think I think what we're both sort of assuming is that if you both wanted to type, um, doing something like Tmux over SSH with Vim or or Emacs might be the path of least resistance. If you're using some kind of graphical tool like Eclipse or something like that, you're going to have a harder time finding some way to share that if you both want to type. Yes, I'll agree with that absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I think what you're saying is, eh, that's not such a problem. Yeah. I just, for yeah. me, at least it hasn't been the case that I've felt a strong need to be the one typing or that we both need to be typing, I guess is right, the better way to put right. that. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Cool. Well, um, Russ, we, we, uh, we could keep going, but I think, uh, maybe it's time to, um, carve off a little time for anything else you want to talk about and then to start to, uh, to wrap it up. So, um, anything else that you're psyched about or we should include or anything like that? I think I'm good. I think I, uh, I actually wrote down some advice. Um, my advice is to, if you're in some position of decision-making and you're thinking about trying this remote thing, trying to, or maybe you're uh, thinking about trying to talk people in your company into trying the remote thing, and my advice is, yes, please do try it. Because, um, again, you go from, uh, you know, everyone who is willing to drive to your office to essentially everyone you can legally employ. And I think that that if you're not doing that, maybe your competitors are going to get a clue at some point, and then uh, maybe you really are going to want to do it. And I think what you end up with is not just you know, the people that you really want to work with, which I think is a huge thing, as opposed to the people who happen to live nearby, uh, you you end up with a bunch of happier employees. I have, you know, my last, the last time I was commuting, I had a 15-minute commute, which is a total of a half hour a day, which is two and a half hours a week. And two and a half hours of the week came out of my life and it either came out of like the energy I put into work or the energy I put into into my personal life or into my sleep or something. And I, you know, having that two and a half hours back, which is a really short commute, um, just makes me a better person to employ. Um, and the other other reason you should try it is maybe a, a, a bigger one, which is that if you look at the numbers on the number of miles that uh, Americans, people who live in the U.S., have driven for the last 10 years or so, there was a dip right around 2007, 2008, which, of course, was when the economy tanked, and that frequently happens when an economy tanks, is that people drive fewer miles. But since then it has really, the curve has really flattened out. And this is a curve that goes all the way back to like 1910 
historically, uh, people who live in the U.S. have driven more miles this year than last year and more miles next year. And that curve for the first time is flattening out, which is just a wonderful thing for, you know, the environment and everything else. And the thinking is that part of that flattening out is that the recovery has kind of been slow and that's not a great thing. But the uh, another part of it is that fewer people are commuting, fewer people are actually going into the office every day. And I think we are all better off for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, wonderful advice. If I had any advice to give on this show, it would be uh, work for Russ. That's a great part of my... <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> but obviously, that doesn't apply to anyone. But if you, you, I will say this. If you have questions, if our listeners have questions about... Um, Specific practices or things, or you know their situation. I think you would join me, Russ, in saying that they should feel free to uh, to tweet at the show or at Cognitect, um, and uh, you know just or send us email or whatever. Use the various channels of communication to ask, and we'll do our best to answer. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. All right, Russ. Well, thanks a ton for your perspective. Always, always interesting to talk to you. Um, I, I would love your insights. I think uh, you do you do an amazing job of managing this. Uh, diverse and far-flung uh, group of people so it was really fantastic to get your your viewpoint on how you pull that off so thanks a ton for taking the time to come on and talk to us today well thank you very much craig you're welcome and in return we will not make you edit this episode <laughs> all right that's going to do it for us today this has been the cognicast all right cool um any thoughts on a cover we can pass it on to michael uh, I hadn't even, okay that's the one part i hadn't thought about <laughs> have been listening to the Cognicast. The Cognicast is a production of Cognitech Inc. Cognitech are the makers of Datomic, and we provide consulting services around it, closure, and a host of other technologies to businesses ranging from the smallest startups to the Fortune 50. You can find us on the web at Cognitech.com and on Twitter at Cognitech. You can subscribe to the Cognicast, listen to past episodes and view cover art, show notes, and episode transcripts at our home on the web, Cognitech.com slash podcast. You can contact the show by tweeting at Cognicast or by emailing us at podcast at Cognitech.com. Our guest today was Russ Olson on Twitter at Russ Olson, R-U-S-S-O-L-S-E-N. Episode cover art is by Michael Parento. Audio production is by Russ Olson and Damian Mack. The Cognicast is produced by Kim Foster. Our theme music is Thumbs Up for Rock and Roll by Kill the Noise with Feed Me. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.